When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Dad's Net Original Podcast. Welcome back to Dad's Net's Podcast. That's JK Armel, and we have got another guest joining us today. Which, um, well, without a shadow of a doubt, it's like the most intelligent person we've ever had on the show. And that's no disrespect to everyone else. It's just that this guy is like a next level, isn't he? I mean, it's scary. Scary next level. Scary next level. How can you... My brain hurts thinking about him thinking. Yeah. (laughs) My brain hurts about him thinking about thinking about thinking about space. Yeah. God, oh, it's agony. Anyway, it's Professor Brian Cox joining us on the, on, on the podcast. And we get to ask him a bit about parenting, a bit about some questions that you guys um, listening submitted through Dad's Net. Uh, we put a post out in Dad's Net and said, what, if, if, you, if you could speak to Brian Cox, what would you ask him? Uh, so we kind of collated some of those questions and put those to him. One of which is, are there aliens? Feels so stupid. Sitting with like one of the biggest brains in the, like, in the, in the country, at the, in the world at the moment. And me going, do you think you aliens did you not put a filter on these questions you didn't have to ask that question well his answer makes the question not so stupid oh really yes. amazing well actually but he's good at that did did anyone ask him when does space end because <laughs> that's the great like, the first que- not well, as in like when's the edge of it yeah no but the very first question we did ask was when is the world gonna end oh and let me just tell you is it the answer we're looking for? Well, the fact that there is an answer is oh. quite terrifying. <laughs> but he does, he does, he does kind of bring it back around. But it's it's really it's really cool. Like just getting to speak to um, someone of his calibre. Um, I haven't even heard this yet. I am looking forward to hearing yeah, this. It's good. It's a nice guy as well. Um, anyway, this is it. It's Professor Brian Cox. Welcome to uh, Dad's Net's podcast. Um, no JK with me today. Usually I have a, a co-host, but he's not with me today because I'm on site at Brooklyn's Museum. And instead of JK, perhaps an upgrade, in fact, I'm joined by Professor Brian Cox. Welcome. You can't say it's an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> he won't mind. I'm sure he would say the same thing. Um, and, uh, and Executive Director of Brooklyn Museum, Alex Patterson. Welcome. Um, I've had a look around today and it has been quite spectacular sight. We'll share more about that afterwards. Um, but first of all, I'd love to ask a couple of questions that some of our listeners have shared. Some of them come from the kids as well. Um, and one that I think probably to get us going, which I think you were asked this morning, which has completely baffled my mind. But um, the question was, when will the world end? 
when will the world end? So if you, if you, I think the question is asked this morning was the earth. And we can answer that. Um, we, we know when the sun's going to run out of fuel. And that really is the end of the solar system. And it's about five billion years, which is fine. It's burning 600 million tonnes of hydrogen every second into helium, the sun. So although it's big, you can fit about a million Earths inside it, it's not that big. So it's got about, it's about halfway through its life, and, it, about, and it'll swell up before that into what's called a red giant. So the Earth will be uninhabitable reasonably, I was going to say reasonably soon. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> Billion, two billion. Okay. But then if you mean by the world, you mean the universe, then it's a good question. As far as we understand it at the moment, the universe is going to expand forever. So, But uh, once the last star has ceased to shine, and arguably, so the last star, we're talking about something like a trillion years, a red dwarf star, then there's no temperature difference. As an engineer, we're at Brooklyn, you know, you need a temperature difference to do anything. Yeah. So the only thing left, ultimately, for, for a very long time, will be black holes. And even they have a temperature. So they glow, Stephen Hawking's great discovery. And if you say, well, when does the last black hole disappear then? And then there really is nothing left in the universe. It's something like, in scientific language, 10 to the power 120 years which is one with 120 noughts after it. And the universe is only one with 10 noughts after it years old right at the moment. It's about 10 billion years, give us so We're young. So we've got a long way to go before the last supermassive black hole evaporates yeah. away. But by a long way, I'm, that's an understatement. Um, I mean... <laughs> so there you go. So it depends what you mean by what ends. Yeah. But Wow. Of course, we might end ourselves significantly earlier than that. Yeah, but that's our that's our choice, not nature's. Sure, I, I want to come on to that as well a little bit because um, that's one of the other questions. But I'm still trying to get my head around that, and I, in terms of like how that kind of blows one's mind in terms of trying to get your head around these numbers. So one of the other questions that that um, was sent in was, you have a lot of. You've discovered a lot of things. You've kind of learned a lot of things. What's the one thing that even for you is kind of mind-blowing? Actually, I do have an answer to that. And, and it was a friend of mine, a colleague, Jeff Borshaw, who right, he's a professor at Manchester as well. We've done a lot of research together, a lot of books together. And we both agree that it's the fact that anything exists at all. So he said, give me one atom. Just give me the existence of an atom. And then I'm, then I'm comfortable then I can see how things can develop, you know, but, but the, the fact that there is anything is surely the most profound question, because we don't understand um, what, even if there was an origin in time, to the, we know there was this hot and dense phase to the universe 13.8 billion years ago, because we've measured it, but what we don't know is what it means to say time began. Does, does that have any meaning at all? Just to say very briefly, the, the, the study of black holes at the moment is going through a revolution in the last few years. And we're beginning now to talk in terms of building blocks of space and time. So we're beginning to think, suspect, this is cutting edge stuff, but suspect that space and time emerge from some deeper structure that doesn't have them in it, which is a very strange thing to say. The, the example I have to give is like, you know, the other hard question in the universe is consciousness, right? What is this thing? Well, we know what it comes from. It comes from a load of atoms in a particular 
<laughs> right, which is a brain, which mm. is just made of stuff, same stuff as this table. But we don't know how it emerges, and it's a remarkable thing. So in the same way, we're beginning to suspect space and time emerge from something else. And so until we know that, until we understand that, I don't think it makes any sense to talk about the origin of the universe at all. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, but there's a deep question, isn't it? <laughs> to is, answer in the 20 only, minutes. The only <laughs> interesting question in some sense is why does anything go to Yeah. Give, give me that and I'll... I'll make sense of it. I don't know if I can answer that. No. <laughs> I wouldn't even like to begin to answer that. Do you find it difficult? This is I'm going off off topic, off um off script here. But do you find not knowing difficult, or do you love not knowing and then wanting to find out? No, we, we could talk about this in the context of engineering as well. But I said to the students this morning that if you think about what being a research scientist is, it's being delighted to stand on the edge of the known. That's what you do, because that's the job. So you're supposed to operate with excitement in, in that sort of looking out into the unknown. The same way, you know, we sat next to Concord just down there. I mean, that, you know, you could talk about that in terms of engineering. That was the unknown. I mean, to build a supersonic passenger airline, or actually anything supersonic, actually, yeah. here, if you're talking about the 1940s, you know, how do you build, how do you, you know, break the sand barrier? It's, it's, it's being delighted. And it's the same sense. It's, it's the same as getting in a... It's not quite the same. I'm not going to claim the theoretical physics is the same as getting in an aircraft and putting it through the sand barrier for the first time. You know, I'm not going to be Chuck Yeager. There's a difference between Chuck Yeager and Einstein. But there isn't in some... Yeah. To get to your question, it's about being delighted in pushing yourself into the unknown. Yeah. So, okay, let, let's... I'll come back to some of these other questions because we, we've... I think this is relevant. <laughs> 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 Here at Brooklyn today, there's 400 children on site, and um, and part of what you want to do at Brooklyn is inspire the next generation of uh, of STEM engineers, engineers, scientists, or mathematicians, or whatever. And um, so, I'd love to you kind of briefly talk about Brooklyn's and how Brooklyn's are doing that, and then I want to come on to how how you're doing that in your own with your own son, let alone the 400 children here as well. Yeah. I mean, Brooklyn's is an amazing place in its own right. I mean, it was built on failure, which sounds really silly, but, you know, without the failure, there wouldn't have been the successes. And that's something that we really believe in. And, you know, what's embedded within the Innovation Academy, um, you look at when they started building the racetrack in 1907 or 1906, they took nine months to build it. Um, mm. And it was the first use of mass-produced concrete. Um, it almost went bankrupt. Um, all the failures stacked up against it. And then when they opened it, it started falling to pieces. But yet they kept on sticking together, learnt, you know, how to improve it. And the incremental development was just massive. And it's using those stories and being able to inform the next generation and inform the, 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 the future through the past is really, really crucial mm. to us. And it's creating tangible, relatable links to the past as well. Um, the young people today can see what people have gone through. And I think that's really important as, you know, people sell people. And if they can identify with individuals from the past, hear about the struggles that they've gone through to get where they are today, that can light a bit of a fire and ignite the passion. Yeah. Well, I can do that too. And then showing, you know, we're talking about new technologies today, but, you know, motoring and aviation were new technologies 100 years ago, and they were the cutting edge then. They're, they're the norm now, 
But we're going through a transport revolution today and actually we need the young people to see what happened then so they can be a part of the revolution to take us to the next step. Yeah. So 100 years in the future, the, the vehicles in 50 years' time are vintage yeah. classics, as it yeah. were, as well. But it's that cycle, isn't it, all the way through It's there. amazing to be sad because we're looking at you can't see. But if you turn your, you know, this Concorde there and then there's, yeah. you know, What's that? That's a, you've got Spitfire and Hurricane over there, you've got a Wellington bomber over there, you know, Concord's behind you. That aircraft, what's really interesting there, that aircraft, Vickens Vimy, um, they successfully flew over the Atlantic in 1919 as part of the um, first ever non-stop flight between um, America to um, Europe, 1919. 1969, Concord had its first test flight. There's 50 years between that flying on two Rolls-Royce Eagle engines and four um, Rolls-Royce Olympus supersonic. Yeah. And it, the mind just is blown it's by the living memory. Living yeah. memory. I mean, it's almost living memory. So that, and that, and yeah. Just yeah. about people around you. Absolutely. Yeah. Alive I, I, I love that, though. That it, and it kind of goes on from your um, when you were saying about standing on the edge of the unknown. This idea of failure and the unknown don't seem to be very comfortable concepts for young people today. I don't know about our, your own children, but, but how do you inspire your children to be comfortable with the unknown and failure? It's how you learn. The, the, if, the, the thing about being a scientist is that, and an engineer actually, it, more as a scientist, we'll start with the scientist. The, the thing about being a scientist is you have to be delighted when it turns out that you're wrong. Because when you're wrong, you've learned something about nature, and it's your job to understand nature. So having an idea about how something works and then finding out that's not the correct idea is tremendous progress. The reason I change it, because engineering is slightly different, because you don't want to be wrong with the shape of your wing yeah. you know something yeah. like that yeah. Yeah. in test phase maybe <laughs> designing aircraft but but broadly speaking that that that's how the aviation yeah. that's how it's become safe to fly absolutely because every time something goes wrong people don't shout at each other they learn yeah. from yeah. it that's the culture it's engineering culture and it's, it is and it's creating that atmosphere or that, that the environment that it's safe to fail in you know i have a daughter who is 10 years old and for a number of years she was afraid of putting her hand up in class to ask for help yeah. she's afraid of that because you're constantly pushing for 10 out of 10 all the time but actually if she gets three out of 10 this time but then gets four out of time 10 the next time and that's to be celebrated because mm. you show that development and it's it's flipping everything on its head yeah and for far too long we've been so focused on achieving up there rather than actually about the process yeah and preparing young people in life is all about the process it's not about the yeah. end result yeah. nice. The, the great Nobel Prize, we go to the top, the Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman, who's one of the greatest physicists that ever lived, Nobel Prize for the quantum theory of electricity and magnetism. And uh, he defined science as a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance, right? <laughs> so it's merely satisfactory. Yeah. And it's a philosophy of ignorance, because the point is that you start out not knowing anything. And you make some guesses, and most of the guesses are wrong, and you do some observation, and you get a bit more insight, and that's how you proceed. That's how the modern world was built. 
that yeah. yeah. It also it's sounds like parenting. Absolutely. <laughs> You've got so, no idea what you're doing. Uh, absolutely still don't, but you just, and uh, you're right, it's, it's a tremendous problem, not only in schools, by the way, but I, I venture in politics, right? <laughs> in, in just not to be far exclusive about it, but the idea that it's hard to run a society and the idea that you can try something and it doesn't quite work. And then the worst thing, can you imagine if you're an engineer building an aircraft? And you, you get it wrong, but you try to tough it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? and tell and everyone it's right. Yeah, aircraft wouldn't work <laughs> yeah. if you'd done that. We said Barnes Wallace's office. Right? You know, you've seen the film about the bouncing bomb. It was a process of getting it wrong because it's hard and getting mm. it wrong again and getting it wrong and learning a bit. So, so the, the thing to tell children is that the greatest minds that built Concord and understood nature, Einstein, everybody, yeah. all those people were delighted when they were wrong, ultimately, fundamentally, because that's part of the path to eventually getting it right. Yeah, that's, that is, um, well, that right there is quite powerful, isn't it? That, that message. It's <laughs> but but it, we've lost it yeah. slightly. I do think in modern... Oh, schools, I agree. Not yeah. only in schools that actually... And it's not in schools, is it? Because teachers know that. But society in general. Yeah, yeah. So how do we get that back? Like, what's what's the answer? It's it's <laughs> claim it loudly, isn't it? And that's why places like this are great because this is engineering. You can see engineering in action here, can't you? The history of it. And, you can. Yeah. It's encouraged people to be hands-on and active and doing things differently in a different mm. context. And you know, it's shaking down the norms. Absolutely encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it amazes me that you can build something like Concord at that time. Without a computer, right? Now. It's like, yeah, how do you do it with a slide rule? It was insane. Slide rule, a bit of paper, yeah. and that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So, not I mean, even a calculator. I mean, I'm trying stuff, absolutely. building stuff and trying it. That, that is also one of the questions that, that well, linked into one of the questions that came up, because the, the original space race was to the moon, which is also... You know, there were things that we couldn't do in the 60s, that, but we yet we kind of send a man to the moon. And the focus was on the moon. Then recent years, it's kind of shifted more to Mars. But it feels like now, it, well, certainly from the media's point of view, it's going back to the moon. Why is that? I think I, there's something about water on the moon. But why is there now a focus back to the moon? Um, because in many ways, it's the stepping stone. So it, I mean, it's by far the easiest place to go. I mean, it's, it's, in spaceflight terms, it's easy. Mars is extremely um, So, but also, I mean, you ask, you get to the question of why do we want to go anywhere? And actually, you think about it, it's interesting. The Moon and Mars are the only two places we can actually go in any conce- on any conceivable timescale. Certainly, Mars is the only planet other than Earth we can land on, ever. Because we're not going to Mercury, because it's too hot. We're not going to Venus because it really is too hot. <laughs> and we're not, and Venus are made of gas. Yeah. <laughs> no, so we're not going to land. So, so, yeah. so it's ultimately, if, if you're going to become uh, a space-faring civilization and move outwards, and we, remember, we, we're talking about practicality. We've already industrialized Earth orbit. That's one of the things we're talking about today with careers. I mean, one of the great... The success stories in British engineering is space engineering. And it's not just building probes that go to Mars to look for life, it's building communication satellites and weather satellites and all this stuff. So we've, we've already industrialized Earth orbit. So the natural next step 
is to the moon and, and to the asteroids. Vast reservoir of resources. And so, so I think it's inevitable that if we are going to grow our civilization, we will have to grow that way. We, we're seeing problems with growing on the surface of the planet. We, you know, we're, we're causing problems. So, so it makes sense to me in the medium to long term to begin to go outwards. And the moon is the easiest first step. Do you think that that will happen, that we will have civilization on the moon? It will have a base on the moon quite soon. I mean, NASA's plan is for the Lunar Gateway Station, which is a you know staging post on the way to the surface. And we can all argue about whether, because we're on the web, people argue about whether that's sensible or not, because yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of debates about it, actually. Yeah. But ultimately, uh, the next place beyond the International Space Station that we go will be a moon base. And you said there is the resources there, so it makes sense. I mean, water's critical. If you can find accessible water, which it seems yeah. that we can, in South Pole or somewhere like that, then it makes sense to go and stick a base there because you've got everything you need. Because all yeah. you need is water. Yeah. Um, coming back around... Have we got time? One minute. <laughs> broad debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more. Um, from a point of view of being dads, but also having uh, incredible knowledge of the world around you and understanding of the world around you, what do you think should be the... Uh, largest concern that parents have in terms of raising the next generation? I know, it, I don't, yeah, that's the question. Oh, God. That's <laughs> open ended. You talked about the moon base. Oh, <laughs> no, I mean, just, you know, it's terrifying when you start looking at the next 50 years, even 25 years, in terms of, you know, fuel, um, uh, food, water, everything, you know. The world is warming up you know the world has never been static in, t in terms of environment you know tens of thousand years you know the, the climate has changed but we seem to be in a rapid process at the moment that is a real concern and um, the shifting of the seasons absolutely everything i think all of that combined that is you know as a dad that terrifies me to think what yeah. my kids are going to be facing and their kids in the future as well but they've also flip side they've got the power to be able to do something about it yes yeah, so the, the challenge now is how to tr manage a planet. Yeah. For the first time, really, in human history, we are faced with that challenge. And it's a, it's a political challenge, ultimately. We know how to do it. So we have the engineering expertise, we have the technology, we, we're smart enough to manage a planet technically. But the question is, are we smart enough politically? And so that, that's a challenge mm. to, to that generation, actually. Um, it can be done, but it, you know, so that, yeah, I hope that they become more skilled politically than our generation. Yeah. That's the hope. I agree with that. Well, that, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to go on, <laughs> on and on and, and uh, you know, go into some of these subjects um, on a deeper level. But that was super helpful. One last, one really quick question, I promise it's just a yes or, well, almost yes or no. And I think it came from one of, the, one of the dad's children, but do you think there is life out there? Yes, but <laughs> if I was to guess, I would say that you would have to go a very long way to find another civilization, potentially outside our galaxy. So you can make an argument that the average number of civilizations per galaxy is closer to zero even than one or two or ten or twenty or hundred. So you can make that argument. It's basically, I know it's a long answer to your question, it's based on the 
amount of time it took from the origin of life on Earth to go to a civilization. It's about four billion years. So on, on this planet, it took one third of the age of the universe to go from cell to civilization. And if that's in any way typical, and you don't know, then even given some cells on Mars or Jupiter's moon Europa or somewhere, the idea that you can get to something like this, like Brooklands, and you know, <laughs> yeah. is, is that's probably a big ask. Okay, so we've ended uh, in a way that's blown my mind. So, so, yeah. Going back to what we said earlier, the responsibility of the next generation, our generation, the responsibility is to hand the earth over in text to our children, first of all. Yeah. It's not exactly clear that we're going to manage that one, but assuming we can hand it over in text, their challenge might be to ensure that the only civilization currently in the Milky Way galaxy persists. And expands outwards. Wow! And so it's, it's, it is. There is a responsibility. I think we might as well assume mm. that that is the position that we find ourselves in. Focus is the mind. Fiddling, tinkering politicians who can't get their act together to yeah. make sure that this civilization persists. Fantastic. Well, let's let's leave it there. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us um, on the podcast. Um, if people want to find, if people want to visit Brooklyn, we'll drop a link in the Let's description. Well, check our website. I definitely recommend it for a family day out. Um, and uh, we'll, well, people will know where to find you. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. We'll Google. Uh, thank you very much. Guys. A Dad's Net original podcast.